Today on Ag News Daily. I would have said the grasshoppers so far in North Dakota seem to be limited to the to the field edges, the, the margins of the field. Um, and, and I did not think that personally that they were overwhelming numbers. Good afternoon and happy Friday from the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, how's your Friday looking? Good afternoon and happy Friday from the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, how's your Friday looking? It's kind of looking a little slow. Got a few things to do today, but really I'm just pretty much ready for the weekend. So I'm happy it's Friday. I'm also ready for the weekend. I have a birthday dinner and a graduation party to go to. So I'll have some fun celebrating some of my friends this weekend, but you just moved. So I suspect you might still be getting the hang of things around your new place, huh? Yeah. I mean, I'm really familiar with the area because it wasn't too far of a move, but yeah, I'm still trying to get used to at least living where I'm at. But this weekend, hopefully I can actually relax rather than, you know, having to feel having to feel like I got to be doing something all the time. Absolutely, Dawson. But I'm going to go ahead and kick things off here. Since we are so ready for the weekend, we might keep things maybe a little bit short because I don't have too much news today. But I do have a follow-up on the story that you shared yesterday about Biden's unveiling of his plan to make half of all the new vehicles zero emissions by the end of the decade. We have heard now from... ACE CEO Brian Jennings, who we had on just last week, I believe. And he says the executive order won't meet climate sustainability goals, which of course is something that you and I talked about, Dawson. He told Brownfield Ag News that low carbon ethanol will make meaningful reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. He said that we have ethanol in abundant volume today at a very low cost that also reduces greenhouse gases by at least percent compared to gasoline. So why would we not also want to capitalize on that? This executive order includes battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, or fuel cell electric vehicles. Jennings says that coal and natural gas are required to build parts of electric vehicles like the batteries. And he said that significantly that significantly increases greenhouse gas emissions associated with those electric vehicles. So it looks like, Dawson, you and I were kind of on the same wavelength that Jennings was on. I am not sure how the rest of the industry will react to this, but this is the first bit that I'm seeing in response to this executive order. Yeah, it's definitely a step farther that Biden took from kind of pulling back on some of the potential restrictions that he would have as far as uh, fuel blending. And this kind of just was a curveball thrown at the ethanol industry. And so there's going to be a lot of people reacting in different ways, whether they support it or not. And I'm sure from the ag sector, we're going to get a lot more uh, pushback than we are from other uh, just regular people. So, But just something I'm watching here today is that The USDA announced on Thursday that beginning Monday, August 9th, that it will issue two new USDA market news reports based on livestock mandatory reporting data. The USDA says the action to push the newest reports supports President Joe Biden's executive order that focuses on promoting competition in the U.S. The order directs the USDA to enhance price discovery, increase transparency, and improve the functioning of the cattle and other livestock markets. The first report, which will be the National Daily Direct Formula-Based Cattle Report, will be based on cattle sold on formulas, grids, and contracts. On Tuesday, 
Wednesday the 10th, the USDA will issue the second report, which will be the National Weekly Cattle Net Distribution Price Distribution Report, which will show the volume of cattle produced purchased at each different level of pricing within the daily formula reports. Now, according to the USDA market news overseen by the department's agricultural marketing service, the reports will include for the national daily direct report will enable stakeholders to see the correlation between the negotiated trade and, and reported formulas base, base prices, as well as the aggregated value between paid being paid as premiums and discounts. For the national weekly cattle price distribution, it will show show at levels of price and volume of trade occurred across the weekly weighted average price for each each purchase type for negotiated, negotiated grid, formula, and forward contracting. Currently, the market speculates whether large or small volume of cattle trade on both prices of that spread. The USDA said that the new reports shine more light on prices prices paid to cattlemen and women in, over, in overall market dian- dynamics and the prices that consumers pay at the grocery store. USDA's efforts to strengthen, to strengthen the food system is a vital component of the administration's whole-of-government response to address near-term supply chain challenges to the economic recovery. Now, Dusty Johnson, a U.S. Rep- representative from South Dakota, also came out in support of this uh, of this latest development saying that he's talked to a lot of cattlemen across the state and they know that they have to compete in an open and transparent market. So he says that the USDA's announcement does not let Congress off the hook and that they still have more to do when it comes to reauthorizing mandatory price reporting by the end of September in order to make these reports more accurate when they come out. We've also had, they've also seen more senators and representatives representatives come out and supported this as well. So this is kind of the latest update on what's being done as far as price discovery that's coming back within the cattle industry and kind of focusing more on uh, the spot market rather than contracting as much as we see it with these larger companies. I am actually very excited about this Dawson. Delaney shared this information with me yesterday because she definitely wanted to make sure that it was covered before the weekend. And I'm really interested to see, you know, what these reports really entail next week. I assume we're going to talk about some of this stuff on Market Monday with Sean Hackett. I guess that's really all I have to say. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I know that this has been a discussion that we have been having on the show for quite some time and, you know, Cattle market transparency has been a pretty big talking point for, I I think, since I started on the podcast, which was over a year ago. So I'm glad to see that we're starting to see some things moving. I just want to know if they're actually going to help as much as, you know, maybe these people hope they will. But... I just have one other thing to talk about today, Dawson, and it is coming out of Nebraska as their ag director says that USDA's small meat processing grant program will have limited impacts because it doesn't include custom exempt facilities. He says that he thinks it's a great idea to have grants to help that industry, but the USDA kind of missed the boat on their target, at least in Nebraska. Steve Wellman says that only processor, processors who are federally inspected qualify for the $500 million grant program. He was quoted as saying, we gave comments to USDA to expand that to custom exempt facilities that don't want to be federally inspected, but they do need help. They do need some grant money. They've been working night and day for the last 16 months from COVID-19, picking up some of the slack that the larger processors had with workforce issues. 
He says that most of the processors are federally inspected, but the smaller facilities work directly with consumers and livestock producers. And he points out that Nebraska is number two in meat processing in the U.S. and number one for red meat processing, partly due to animals being processed at federally inspected facilities. So I'm interested to see if USDA, you know, makes a statement about this, if they come out with another program or make any alterations to their current program. Well, Ashton, just another thing that I'm watching today is that Giant Eagle, a, another supermarket operator, is joining the crowd of suing Tyson Foods, Hormel Foods, and other large pork production companies for allegedly conspiring to fix prices with information shared on data service AgriStats. The lawsuit, filed, which was filed on Thursday in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois, is the latest in a string of recent complaints alleging that the nation's largest meat and poultry producers are engaging in price fixing. According to the complaint, the defendants, which control about 80% of the wholesale pork market in the U.S., began conspiring in 2009. Pork prices rose more than $1.80 per pound in 2014 from $1.40 per pound in 2009, according to the complaint. Among those defendants, JBS and Smithfields allegedly used information accessible through AgriStat service to artificially inflate pork prices in the U.S., According to the complaint, the company's actions to reduce and stabilize the supply of pork, even as demand rose, indicate their common goal was to just increase prices. And earlier this week, grocery store chain Winn-Dixie Stores and its affiliate also sued turkey and beef producers, including Butterball LLC and National Beef Packing Company, for allegedly price fixing using data assessed through AgriStats as well. A federal judge in Minnesota this week granted a direct purchase group's request to consolidate lawsuits against the same large pork processing companies over similar price fixing claims. So there's that's just another development in all this price fixing allegations that have been going on. We've seen earlier of Tyson's and JBS and these other companies pretty much sell, uh, settling some of these lawsuits at pretty hefty prices. And so I'm just curious on if that's even going to continue, because it seems that a lot of these major grocers are starting to really come out with these complaints. Yeah, Dawson, I mean, we've been seeing these kinds of headlines come out, I feel like left and right. So honestly, can't say I'm too surprised at this point. Not at all, Ashton. And really, it's, it all starts with, with all these companies being almost held accountable for everything that it comes to producer margins getting smashed, as well as grocery retailers having to raise prices as well. Absolutely, Dawson. But I am all out of news for today. How about you? I would say I'm all out of news for today, too. Alrighty, then I am going to go ahead and move into the markets here as grains were a little higher midday today, except for September corn, which was down three quarter cents to close at 5.55. The December up three and a half cents to close at 5.56 and a half. In soybeans, the September up eight and a half cents to close at 13.44 and a quarter. The November closing eight and a quarter cent higher at 13.36 and three quarters. In the wheat, the September contract closed six and a quarter cents higher at 7.19. The December of eight cents higher to close at 7.33 and a quarter. 
In livestock, green across the screen here in live cattle, the October up 30 cents to close at 127.87, the December up 55 cents to close at 133.32. In feeder cattle, some green here too as we look at the September contract, up $2.17 to close at 163.32, the October up $1.92 to close at 165.77, and lean hogs, the October up 47 cents higher to close at 87.60. The December up 87 cents to close at 81.75. Rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the September up nine cents to close at 16.49. The October up 16 cents to close at 17.04. With that, Dawson, let's go ahead and share with the audience our conversation that we had this morning with Dave Green talking about last week's wheat tour. For today's Friday episode, we are ending the week talking about last week's wheat tour with Dave Green, who is the Executive Vice President of the Wheat Quality Council. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So before we really get started talking about what you guys saw in the field, can you tell us a little bit more of the logistics, where you guys started, those kinds of things? All right. Maybe I'll start with a little background if, if you have a minute and tell you that these wheat tours uh, and, and their association with the Wheat Quality Council go back uh, uh, probably 50, 50, 60 years. And they were originally uh, sponsored by the council to bring some of the end use customers and the millers out to the to the country and let them see the new combines and the new uh, equipment and the new wheat varieties that were being grown and let them get a feel for what was actually the problems with growing wheat and that the farmers were having. And it was all kind of, like I say, in that field trip kind of spirit. And then when the when the Russians started buying grain in the 70s, there was more concern for, for real information, you know, which Meant, you know, when is this crop going to be harvested? What's the protein look like? What is it going to yield? Um, you know, what are the major diseases that are going to affect production? So the, the the wheat tour took on a little more serious tone in that we we were trying then actually to to not only show off the state and and talk about new wheat varieties and new machinery but also then to describe what was going on and you know what the crop looked like and compared to other years so the our our format has kind of been formalized over time to try to make sure we're covering the information that everybody gets with with a knowledge that this is a training deal you know originally this was you know getting people exposure to wheat uh, that wouldn't normally have an opportunity to let them learn about what the stages are what these diseases look like in the field so it, it's still got that a combination of a training mentality and also a seriousness of trying to with the limitations we have trying to do the best job describing the crop so the way we've come down to is we have eight different routes uh, that we've had for 50 years. 
and uh, we we assign cars to the route with uh, three passengers in them, and they follow the route. Everybody uses the same yield formula. We stop every 10 to 15 miles along the route at a random field and uh, go in and do the analysis, do the observations, and then uh, get back in the car and go again. So over the course of three days, then traveling through North Dakota, we get a real coverage of all the areas uh, that that grow wheat, and uh, and we tend to report on them and and uh, let everybody know what our pictures look like and what our what our yield, yields look like compared to the year before. Well, Dave, kind of talking about this year's uh, wheat tour, uh, there's a lot of talk, and this year we're seeing that a lot of conditions are not looking great for the spring wheat crop. And kind of going into the tour, there was talk that. You know, things might not be looking good, but then your guys' conclusion was that it looked better than what you expected. So can you get, kind of give us some insight as to what you're expecting versus what you got? Yeah, and, and I don't know that I would have said, I, 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 I tried to not to use that phrase because I, I don't know what other people were thinking. And, and I personally try to, uh, to not make up my mind before I get there, but <clears throat> to, your, to your point, it was well known that through the uh, NAS and through the other, uh, you know, people that were up there making observations that that it, it was hot and dry and it had been hot and dry. And a lot of areas, there was a lot of concern about what the crop looked like and, and what the what the potential was going to be. I think that that has continued and and the effects that our tour found were were substantial. I mean, this is this is obviously a uh, uh, not an average crop, and 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 it's approaching some of the worst crop ratings that uh, that we've ever had up in North Dakota. So, Dave, when you guys were in the field, you mentioned in your summary that you saw quite a bit of grasshoppers, and I've read a couple of different stories from different producers and people who have been in the fields in particular, you know, out West about these grasshoppers and that they haven't seen anything like this, maybe even dating back to the eighties. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the grasshoppers, you know, I'm, unfortunately, I, I have to tell you, I'm one of those people that, that was looking at crops in the eighties and uh, you know, in these hot, dry years, the grasshoppers seem to be everywhere and seem to be the, you know, just kind of like the last straw uh, that the farmers have to go through. The uh, w- the dry conditions, um, um, you know, maximize the, the 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 hatch, so so you get more grasshoppers with less less natural uh, uh, pressure on them, and then the fact that that the pastures are dry. And uh, their natural habitat in the in the ditches and uh, and in the pastures is not enough for them to survive on. They tend to move to field crops, and uh, uh, that's certainly the case this year. Um, I thought that uh, I would have said the grasshoppers so far in North Dakota seem to be limited to the to the field edges, the, the margins of the field. Um, and and I did not think that personally that they were overwhelming numbers. But uh, they were certainly around, and uh, I, I know at least in Montana, they're they're recognizing now that they they've they've suffered severe damage from the grasshoppers. I don't quite know how bad the this is going to end up being as far as 
uh, North Dakota, but I think it's part of the picture of dryness. You know, it, it, when you when you describe what it looks like up there, it is it is short wheat, thin stands, and grasshoppers flying around trying to find something to eat. So it they were up there, that's for sure. So, Dave, another thing that's kind of creeping into people's minds are milling wheat. Kind of, you know, having enough having enough high quality wheat for baking goods and everything like that. And it seems like people are kind of worried about that yet from your, from your conclusion, from the wheat tour, you said that from what's there, that the wheat is in still pretty good quality condition. So do you have anything to say about, you know, maybe alleviating concerns for, you know, and having enough supplies, especially for flour is to seems to be the big one, but do you just have anything to comment on that? Yeah, I, I think when we, when we, and again, I, I come from a milling background, so so a lot of a lot of the the the, the questions that the millers had for me and the grain and the uh, grain end users, the bakers had for me, was you know we know we have a, sh- a short crop and and below average, but is it at least going to be millable? With the idea that you know is what's grown going to be used, or are we going to have to subtract even more of the wheat crop? you know, into the unusable category and reduce further the stocks that are available. And, and so I spent all, almost the entire time, once, once I got my group every day trained up in the, into how to measure the fields, I spent the, the every day up there just thrashing heads, trying to look at how the wheat was developing. And my personal feeling was that I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised that the wheat isn't all shriveled up. It it looks like it's it's sound to me. It's not pinched, and and I pass that on as as an observation that I, I personally feel that we're going to look back on this and realize we have a short crop to deal with. But I suspect we're going to see a nice high protein, uh, good milling quality crop basis. What I what I personally saw up there. And Dave, in this summary, you talk about abandoning fields. Do you think that this is going to be a pretty high trend this year? Well, yeah, uh, I, I don't think there's any question about that. When, uh, you know, normally wheat that's planted in North Dakota is going to go to the harvest unless something extraordinary happens, like it gets hailed out or it, there's a fire that burns it up. So normally they harvest almost all of the wheat that gets planted in, in North Dakota. And again, as opposed to like a Oklahoma or Texas, where half of the crop gets grazed out because that's what they want to have happen. They want to feed cattle. Um, so this year, when when you've got people that have cattle in North Dakota and they're looking at what the price of a bale of hay is to bring in and they realize their pastures aren't very good. You you tend to see them make a decision, a financial decision that it's probably better for them to feed their own crop to their own animals rather than try to bring hay in or sell off the animals. And so, yes, it, in, in, in all aspects, you're going to see more abandonment uh, because people people have reasons for 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 uh, for either bailing it or grazing it off. So having said that, I don't know how big that number is. I I couldn't. Our group really can't tell, and I know I personally can't tell driving through how much of this is is um, 
you know, is, is it 5% abandonment? Is it 10? Is it 15? Is it 20 or greater? I don't, I don't, I can't get a handle on that. The government, I think, is going to have to figure that out. But I do think it's not a normal year. There, you can tell there's a lot more bales of wheat out in the fields. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of wheat that I suspect isn't going to be harvested that's still standing. A lot of the fields we were in have no business having a combine run across them. Uh, even though they were still standing, I suspect they'll, they'll, they'll eventually be abandoned by insurance. Well, Dave, this is definitely going to be one for the books. And thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us. And if others are wanting to maybe find out more about the tour or about the Wheat Quality Council, where can they find that information at? Yeah, we have a website at uh, www.wheatqualitycouncil, one word, uh, .org. And on there is my summary of the of the trip, what I thought. All of our data is on there uh, for this year and as far back as we go uh, into the 90s. So you can read about what we thought of other crops in history, uh, what we actually, all the fields that we stopped at and what those averaged uh, there. And then that's the place that we'll do our advertising for next year's tours and uh, give people a chance to sign up if they want. But that's the location to go to, to learn more about the council and about these wheat tours. Well, Dave, thank you so much. You definitely offered a lot of insight as to what people can expect for this year. Thanks very much. Thanks again there to Dave for coming on and chatting with us. Like you said, Dawson, glad that we got to have him on to get a little bit of insight on what we're seeing in the fields. And if anybody wants to go and look a little bit more at those numbers, I believe their website that Dave said was www.wheatqualitycouncil.org. But for our listeners that want to listen to our podcast a little bit more, they can do so at agnewsdaily.com or wherever they find their podcast, or I should say wherever you find your podcasts. With that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.